I'm Will Howell. I'm Viola Giuda, and this is not another politics podcast. So, Will, um, it's just you and me today. I know. Anthony's away, and do you know what that means, Viola? <laughs> no one is going to defend the rational voter. Exactly. We are this going to our... trash on the voter today. Exactly. Their <laughs> ignorance and irrationality. This is going to be a full-throated airing of just how bad <laughs> voters really are. <laughs> this is our opportunity. We must use it. Well, so one thing that we could talk about, for example, is, is the upcoming election. And it seems like Trump is on his path to become the nominee of the Republican Party. He won the first two primaries. One thing that, that's really associated with him is this idea of deep state and draining the swamp. And, you know, different people have different ideas of what that means, but but partially the way it manifested itself during Trump's administration is his abuse or disregard for, for certain governmental agencies and his ability to affect how those agencies perform or not perform. So my favorite example is the EPA, of course. One question that we have, at least I have on my mind, is what's going to happen when he comes to power? Is this going to continue? And what it means for the American democracy and for how how we uh, think about lawmaking and who actually controls uh, lawmaking in this country. So, Will, you, you are an expert on presidency and uh, you also talked to someone who thought about this issue uh, quite deeply. I did. I talked to David Knoll at the University of Rutgers, uh, their law school. David is an administrative law professor, and he thinks a lot about the design of the administrative state, the processes within the administrative state that govern how rules are written, how they're interpreted, how they're implemented. And he does so with good cause. Most of the action at the federal level, when you think about the construction of policy, the interpretation of policy, and ultimately its implementation is not happening in a gridlock Congress. It's happening within a vast administrative state that's trying to make sense of statutory law and, and to try to figure out what ought to be done to protect the environment or to ensure worker safety or to implement any number of statutes that sit on the book that govern the missions and objectives of hundreds and hundreds of agencies sprawling all across the federal bureaucracy. And so David has written this paper called Administrative Sabotage that suggests that this effort to undermine goings-on within the administrative state are not unique to Trump. They have a longer history and their uh, particular strategy that people who oppose the administrative state employ. While it's a, you know, this is a different kind of paper than we're used to talking about. It's a, a paper that appeared in a, in a law review, in, in the Michigan Law Review. It, it nonetheless uh, underscores an empirical phenomenon, a, a thing that's actually happening in the world that we would do well to put in our sights and try to make sense of. Maybe to get started, some definitions might be in order to just get our bearings about what it is that we're talking about. When you say sabotage, what precisely do you have in mind? You know, I teach in a law school, and so we spend a lot of time interpreting the statutes that agencies operate under, looking at the Administrative Procedure Act, and developments in the real world were taking place. And, and it seemed like there was this entire category of action of, of what agencies were doing that really fell outside the confines of what I was teaching my students, what every other teacher of, of administrative law was teaching their students. And that was things like HHS using its authority as an agency to attack the Affordable Care Act, not to under-enforce it, not to move policy in one direction or another, but to take actions which had the purpose of uh, either nullifying the law or making it practically inoperable. So when I say administrative sabotage, the focus of this paper is on agency action that's directed at undoing a statutory program. And I wrote the paper because it seemed to me that this was a bit of a blind spot in the way that administrative law scholars were thinking about the administrative state, because we spend so much time thinking about how agencies can move policy one direction or another, or agencies might go too far. But we had given insufficient attention to this mode of action, which uh, which spiked under Trump, where agencies were really going after the programs that they administer and uh, trying to dismantle them or, or wipe them off the books. 
Yeah, it's not just that they're going after a program. It's they're going after the program or uh, that sits at the very center of what they do that justifies their existence. And in that sense, to the extent that they s- succeed in the work of sabotage, they put themselves out of a job, right? They, yeah, it, yeah it, maybe agency very... suicide would have been a better <laughs> title yeah. for whatever was I talking about. Okay, so when you talk about sabotage, that is different from things that we have talked about in the past, both in the law and in political science, things like slacking or shirking or, or, or drift, the notion that what you do doesn't align perfectly with what Congress wants or what the president wants. This is sort of a really extreme action wherein you undermine the very capacity for an agency to function and the very justification for its existence. Yeah, that's right. And what's tricky about sabotage, and where I've had a lot of great discussions about this paper, is that things that agencies do with an intent to sabotage, with an intent to keep a statute from operating, are the same kind of stuff that we expect agencies to do normally. So for example, agencies normally take litigating positions. They're they're constantly telling us what the laws that they administer mean. They're constantly issuing regulations. Agencies can and should exercise prosecutorial discretion to decide which violations of the law to go after. And really what's normatively problematic about sabotage is that you can take any of these routine agency actions, forms of action, and use them in a way that is designed to undermine a statutory program. I gave it a great deal of thought. I ultimately come down to the position that you can't really define sabotage other than by looking at the intent of agency action because that's what singles it out from all the other stuff the agencies do. And so it makes it a bit difficult to analyze because you're asking, is this action, which is probably going to be defended on neutral sounding policy grounds by lawyers who are very good at justifying what the agencies do, is this action really um, you know, part of an effort to undermine a statutory program? And so what does that look like? You said they're using standard tools or they're not, they're not exercising altogether new powers but they're doing it with a different kind of intent. So can you talk to us about some of those tools that they use? What does that actually look like when they're engaging in the work of sabotage? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just sort of a basic one is the litigating positions that agencies take, you know, court battles about whether an agency is allowed to do something or the other. Under typical models of the bureaucracy, the agency would be fighting to expand its power to say, we have discretion to exercise our authority in the way that we think best. You know, an example that I mentioned in the paper is that Trump's CFPB director, Mick Mulvaney, supported an effort to hold the CFPB unconstitutional when, when, when there was a constitutional challenge to the CFPB that was at the Supreme Court. What is it? And the CFPB is? Uh, the, the CFPB is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, an agency that was originally proposed by then Harvard law professor Elizabeth Warren in response to the 2008 financial crisis. And her innovation was to posit that uh, the law would never allow somebody to sell a defective toaster that, that exploded or that burned you when you plugged it in. And she argued in a very famous paper that she co-authored that consumer financial products were like that, that people were being sold bad mortgages that were the, the consumer financial equivalent of a toaster that exploded when you plugged in. And part of her diagnosis of the problem was that regulatory authority over consumer financial companies was split across lots of different agencies and lots of different regulators that that didn't have a coherent mission. And so the CFPB was created as part of the Dodd-Frank Act to rationalize consumer financial regulation, was fervently opposed by folks on the industry side of things, including Mulvaney, who was then a member of Congress. And lo and behold, he's put in place as, as as the director of the agency. And he's saying the same thing in briefs to the Supreme Court, except now, instead of asking Congress to unwind the agency's authorizing legislation, he's saying, please hold the agency that that, that I've taken an oath of office to uh, to administer uh, unconstitutional. <laughs> so uh, that's one. <laughs> Agencies can issue regulations that make it practically impossible for them to carry out the, the work that they're charged with performing. One example of this uh, from the Trump administration, there was something called the science transparency rule, would have required the disclosure of underlying data in epidemiological studies that EPA relied on when promulgating air quality regulations. 
that perhaps sounds like a good thing, right? Everybody, we all believe in open data and we all want uh, the data that empirical work is based on to be open to scrutiny, but this data could not be published because of privacy concerns. And so the effect of saying that EPA could not rely on these epidemiological studies would effectively have been to say that EPA cannot do air quality regulations uh, of major uh, of major pollutants. So that's another tool. I, I can walk you through lots of them, which I catalog in the paper. <laughs> so you, you you intimated that this peaked under Trump. Say say more. What was going what was going on in the Trump administration? So what makes the Trump administration interesting to study is that because Trump was so open about what he was doing, some of these definitional problems that we usually run into when thinking about administrative sabotage just disappeared. So, so oftentimes presidents will do or suggest something that that looks like an effort to undermine a statutory program, but offer a, a, a neutral policy reason for it. And then sort of folks like me have to say, oh, okay, is, you know, is this really just sort of a difference about how it should be administered or is the president really going after the program? Trump would say things like, well, uh, Congress failed to repeal the Affordable Care Act. We're going to do it a different way and then issue a bunch of executive orders the following day, making questions about the intent of the administrative action pretty simple to answer. So Trump pulls together sort of a lot of factions uh, within the Republican Party. And, and one of those is an extreme anti-regulatory, anti-government, anti-system faction, which is very much opposed to the federal bureaucracy and administrative power outside the domains of immigration and national defense. Trump and uh, Bannon came into office promising to deconstruct the administrative state to bring agencies to heel. And the presidency, it, it happens to turn out, gives you tremendous powers to do that because presidents appoint agency administrators, right? Pre presidents can issue uh, executive orders to agencies that whatever their legal status are taken very seriously by agency heads and agency employees. Presidents can direct enforcement to be carried out in a particular way. They control how the agencies write contracts uh, or do grant making. Really, what's distinctive about Trump isn't the fact that agency sabotage was happening. I, I say in the paper that probably every presidential administration sees some sabotage uh, of administrative programs because of partisan misalignments between uh, the president and the Congress that created the program. I, I think what's special about Trump uh, is the lack of a filter and, and his, you know, his desire to, to make good on promises to deconstruct uh, the administrative state. There was a, a lack of what I would see, you know, from my position in, in a law school as professional people who had long run incentives not to disrupt the system too much. So, the, the, you know, there's kind of a confluence of events, right? Yes, Trump is saying the quiet part out, out loud. Yes, he's more brazen in appointing agency heads who are firmly against the mission of the agencies that they're charged with administering. But there's also these contingent historical factors, right? right? You, you, had a, you had a Congress where the key oversight committees were not going to convene hearings because they liked the effort to undermine the EPA or they liked the effort to, you know, they, they were also trying to, to roll back the Affordable Care Act. And so sort of one of the interesting things about thinking about this is just sort of the extent to which these partisan considerations having to do with what we want the federal government to look like and what we want the federal bureaucracy to look like just completely subsume traditional separation of powers theory, right? We, we don't have Congress protecting its agencies that it's that it, that's created and you know holding the executive to account for maladministration of the law. We have members of Congress saying, "Go get it, right? Get, like, knock these agencies down." And so, right, there's this this cross institutional program to attack the EPA or the Affordable Care Act or any of these major programs. And it almost didn't make a difference whether you're talking about anti-regulatory officials who are in the executive branch uh, or Congress, they were, they were using the, the institutional tools available, them, uh, available to them to pursue the same project. It's a project though that could be directed through channels that I think neither you nor I would think of as being problematic. That is, just as there are statutes written to create agencies and programs, those statutes can be revisited. Just as the EPA is created, it too, statutorily, can be shuttered. But they're not doing that. Even as Trump enjoys a measure of support within Congress in, in his project of sabotaging the EPA, 
how are we to think about that? So I guess the first point is that I agree. You know, I don't think there's anything problematic about you know an agency head going and testifying to Congress. Uh, you know, I think that what you've done in this law doesn't make sense anymore. That you know this is this is an inefficient agency. You know, I, I don't personally think this, but maybe the EPA. We you know we analogize to the you know to the, you know the airline regulators and say, all right, you've outlived your usefulness. So there there is a lawful, normal, constitutional way that agencies come and go. And that's not what this this paper is about. I think what's what's problematic about the agency actions that I define as sabotage is that they're undertaken by folks who, you know, formally are supposed to be administering and implementing laws. There is an assumption of good faith administration, right? When Congress sets up the EPA, right? Or, or when Congress sets up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that the folks who are administering those programs will acknowledge the legitimacy of Congress's statutory goals. Uh, so in the case of the CFPB, that's, you know, that shady consumer financial products actually are a problem and consumers do need to be protected from predatory practices. And then they'll use their authority in ways that are consistent with the statutory mission. And that's the stuff of, of standard administrative law. So what's normatively troubling is that these administrators are not accepting the legitimacy of programs they're being called upon to administer. And so, you know, from a separation of powers perspective, you know, that's in tension with the idea that that Congress gets to set policy, right? And, and the principle of legislative supremacy. If you want to think about it in constitutional terms, uh, the president has a constitutional obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. When you see agencies right, using these implementation powers or, or, or these administrative powers to instead try and undo the programs, uh, uh, their exercise, it's just kind of at, at odds with the way the whole system is supposed to work. Sort of, it undermines Congress's ability to uh, to address social problems by creating agencies and departments and, and charging them with the necessary work of elaborating and enforcing statutory policy. I guess I'd be inclined to say that the work of sabotage is in an important respect lawless. That is, the sabotage is in the service of undermining the capacity of administrative agencies to pursue objectives and perform functions that are written into statutes. They have a legal obligation to undertake this work. And if you have an objection to those legal obligations, you can go change the law. But in the absence of changing the law, these administrative back channels through which sabotage is directed is degrades the rule of law. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I think that the fact that sabotage is definitionally lawless uh, and indeed unconstitutional doesn't necessarily mean there's legal remedies for it. Be and that's right. That's because sussing out whether administrative action falls within the sphere of the agency's authority or is directed at sabotaging a statutory program is a very tricky thing to do, right? It requires us to make these judgments about what the purpose of, of agency action is. And if you really want to have an evidentiary basis to do that uh, in a court setting, you'd have to take discovery of people involved in these in these decisions and you know depose the agency heads, go through their files. And courts are very hesitant to intrude on the work uh, of, uh, of another branch of government that way. So in administrative law, right, there's a very strong presumption that the agency's stated reasons for doing something are its actual reasons. And you know, the legal standards, right, there, there has to be right, a clear showing of bad faith in order to overcome that. Now, uh, interestingly, in the census case, <laughs> the district court actually found that there was such a showing and we got that discovery into what was happening uh, at the agency level. But in general, right, the fact of what agencies are really doing is going to be hard to get at through the legal process. And agencies are also going to stonewall freedom of information requests that would reveal the real reasons for the agency's action. And so that puts courts and that that puts groups that want to mount legal challenges to the agency's action in this very difficult position of saying, look, this is obviously sabotage. And the agency coming back and saying, no, 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 this is we're we're just making a judgment about how to allocate resources. And we 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 genuinely think, you know, the, the office that's been in Washington, DC for the last 50 years should be moved to Topeka. And it's all, you know, it's it's not because we don't like the statute. It's it's because, you know, 
it, you know, it's cheaper to hire uh, IT people out there. And you know, that's what we're doing. And so, you know, courts and outsiders and lawyers are, are left in this position of saying, you know, okay, is this ordinary administration or is this, uh, is this an effort at sabotage? Again, the fact that the president is going on Twitter or whatever he's on now and saying, I'm going to sabotage the statute makes it a lot easier. But, you know, I don't think, you know, the conservative movement is going to be led by someone who is that open about his intentions forever. And so, you know, even if even if sabotage is easier to analyze under a Trump like administration, this evidentiary problem is going to persist. And we're, we're going to have to ask these questions about why agencies are doing what they're doing. And I, I guess I'll give the other side, um, just you know, for the sake of completeness. I, I think if if you had Mick Mulvaney on, he would say, you know, it's true that I have some differences uh, with the policies that that the CFPB and that Congress is pursuing in the Dodd Frank Act, but I have an obligation to follow the Constitution, and my my understanding of the Constitution is a that Congress may lack authority under the Constitution to to do this at all. And B, if Congress does have the authority, it's it's subject to direction from the president. And the president has authority under Article Two to direct all officers uh, of the executive branch. And so, no, I'm I'm not violating the law. I'm you know I, I'm I'm upholding the highest the, the highest constitutional principles. <laughs> so, yeah, it's something though, because the first move would suggest, Mr. Mulvaney, that what you ought to be doing is not in your capacity as agency head, but that the administration more broadly ought to go before Congress and say, we need to revisit this law. That's what the, right? Because this law is itself unconstitutional. Let us reconsider it. And then in the latter instance, it's really something to say, and you talk about this in the paper, that what the president thinks the law ought to be, right, has greater standing than the law itself, which it's, which was written by you know the two first two branches of government, and mm-hmm. and and is and is codified in statute. But I, but I think what this exchange highlights is the way that administrative sabotage is interacting with these other developments in conservative legal thought and conservative uh, political mobilization. And so, right when Mulvaney says that, right, my understanding of the Constitution is that Congress can't do that. He's not. You know, he, he's not picking that out of thin air, but that, that's, you know, you know, dating back to uh, Attorney General Meese, right, uh, if not before, a lot of groundwork has been laid to, uh, as a constitutional matter, attack the legitimacy of a robust federal government. And so there's a whole, uh, you know, I teach, I teach this stuff in class, but right? there's, there's a whole framework of conservative constitutional thought which is basically anti-New Deal and anti-government uh, in its orientation. And uh, the availability of that body of, of thought and doctrine and the fact that the Supreme Court currently, uh, thanks to Trump-era court packing, right, is controlled by jurists who very much uh, are friendly to it, it even, even if sometimes they're a little bit hesitant to put it into operation, makes these arguments about legality very difficult to you know, to hang your hat on because maybe Mulvaney will say, oh, well, you know, I, people who are attacking the CFPB keep winning in the Supreme Court. So how could it be that I'm violating some, you know, some duty that I have to, uh, to, 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 to administer an unconstitutional program? Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Yeah, so definitely when you call it administrative sabotage, it sounds bad and dismantling agencies and firing people or, or you know, Restricting uh, the use of scientific knowledge sounds bad, but but I wanna I wanna think a little bit about whether you know there's some strategy behind it that's actually rational and and reasonable to start some extent. So when I think about agencies, a lot of them are established to regulate things. So naturally, they're a little bit more inlined 
as you know, not ideologically, but but as an idea with uh, Democrats than Republicans. And you should say, okay, fine. You know, then then the president can affect to what extent they are implementing the statue. Uh, and that's fine while they're in power. But I think there's this this imbalance. So imagine, for example, um, environmental regulation again. If companies know that every time a Democrat is in power, then they are heavily regulated, they can't pollute, they have to produce electric cars. And when a Republican is in power, they are actually unregulated. Well, do, what do they end up doing? Well, it's better for them to actually readjust investments so that they are uh, behaving as if regulation was always in place. It's not that they are going to suddenly invest in pollution abatement, and then they are going to disinvest. Like once they invest, this pollution abatement technology is out there. So in a sense, just by construction, the rules are tilted in favor of Democrats. Yes. So if you are if you're a Republican president and you think, well, all this all this regulation of pollution, all this regulation of uh, environmental protections and so on is completely uh, misguided. How do I make sure that when I shift policymaking today to some extent, when I don't enforce those rules? Companies believe me that those rules won't be enforced, that they react. They that coming again, back. I have exactly that I have some power. I'm not just like doing it in the vacuum and no one is listening because they know they will be brought back. And and one way to do that is to dismantle those agencies. So I'm not defending it, but to what extent do you think that might be a strategy that's trying to make this uh, an equal power of the presidents, uh, you know, a little bit more equal? Yeah, I think that politically there's a real logic for the exercise of this strategy. Conservatives, in looking out on an administrative state with robust liberal components, are on their heels, both because um, rules that might be put in abeyance in one moment can come back to life in the next, and so the companies have reason to simply behave as if they've always been in place. Even more to the point, to my mind, is that the administrative state has all kinds of organized interests and Uh, protections built up around it that make it very difficult for conservatives to step in and subvert or redirect their activities. And so I think we can kind of see the effort to sabotage the administrative state is born of longstanding frustration of the political inheritances that they are burdened with. And so, right, they step in and say, oh, let's do as best we can to simply not just redirect or curtail, but to shut down these agencies that we think don't advance the national interests. It's also worth noting that, you know, David is agnostic about whether or not these agencies are the right agencies and have the right purposes and are advancing the right rules and regulations. There are in, I think, our normal politics instances he would allow for, David would allow for, instances where the where the agencies will get it wrong. And, you know, they'll overstep their authority and there's then a place for Congress or the courts to step in and provide a corrective. Again, sabotage, though, is this different realm. It's directed primarily by the president, but through the appointment of political uh, loyalists who do do his bidding in order to hollow out, in order to gut these agencies. To your point, that might work for a while, but then they could be resurrected. And if they are resurrected and those companies that are being regulated know that, then maybe they just behave all along as though these, these agencies are effective and, and the work of sabotage may, may not carry through. I mean, the cycle of uh, killing and resurrection is actually extremely inefficient. No, like I guess if you have experts depart, then you can hire new experts, but they are less likely to be as good as the previous ones because they will have less experience and so on. And and people, you're also going to attract lower quality workers, I would say, if they think that their job is going to last only for four years and then they will be fired. So so definitely if, if we enter the cycle of <laughs> of killing agencies and resurrecting them, that's, that's putting us on a very bad path. But it does raise the question of what the alternatives are, no? Because if Congress allows agencies to have a lot of flexibility in how they implement uh, statutes, and David talks a lot about the fact that it's it's not only Congress, but also there seems to be a really huge reluctance from the judiciary to intervene and to somehow restrain the agencies from veering away from implementing faithfully whatever uh, Congress intended. So if, if we have this flexibility, if we allow it, then we are going to have this back and forth where the policy will be tilted to the right, uh, left and to the right. And that's 
that's most of the time when it comes to regulation benefiting Democrats. And uh, then, then it raises a question, what do we do? And maybe then then the question is like, we should go back to Congress. And, and so I think we are going to go there uh, later where we are going to talk about David's prescriptions of what should be done. But like one thing that was on the back of my mind all the time is, well, you know, at the end of the day, this should go back to Congress. Congress should think a little bit more carefully about what is it that they are trying to achieve. And if they are, if, if, we have a Republican Congress, and they do think that certain policies are against their um, their typical uh, preference. Then maybe they should dismantle those agencies to start with. Yeah, I mean, I think you've said you've underscored another a number of possibilities. One is that the judiciary needn't be as accommodating to the the judgments of the administrative state when interpreting statutes. And there's a push right now in the effort to, for instance, the Supreme Court right now is considering a case where they would overturn what's called Chevron deference, which then would carve out a greater space for the judiciary to step in and say, nope, you courts have veered. You've gone too far in one direction or another. Another, a, a new principle that's being lifted up by the conservative majority on the Supreme Court right now that also looks disparagingly on the administrative state is this major questions doctrine, which suggests that, well, if Congress wasn't very clear in a delegation of authority about something major, whatever that might be, then the administrative state can't claim to have any authority to render judgments and, and to hand down rules and policies that um, in, the, in that domain. That's one possibility, is to get the courts more involved. Another possibility, if you're concerned about the shifting from the left to the right, right, or the, the sabotage and the resurrection and the inefficiencies and the volatility associated with that, one possibility is just create a more independent administrative state. And there are plenty of countries that have vastly more administrative states than ours. And then you reduce the kind of volatility. You And, and the natural way to do that would be to reduce the number of political appointees that presidents can make. And then you, you should see less shifting, right? Less the, the swings as a function of what the latest outcome from from the uh, presidential election should 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 attenuate. The big one, though, is what is what you pointed to just at the end there, which is to say, if you don't like what an agency does, then the thing to do is to go back to Congress and say we should repeal the EPA. If you don't like the EPA, the EPA, the people who are working at the EPA are working towards a, a, a mission that's written into law. It's embedded in statute. And so to say that I, as president, don't like the EPA and therefore I'm going to undermine the work of the EPA is in an important respect a violation of the rule of law because what they're doing is attending to objectives laid out in statute. And again, if you don't like those statutes, then the thing to do is to go before Congress and say the EPA has systematically proven it's to be worthless. Um, and what we should do is cut it back. Um, we should eliminate it. And David would have no objection to that legally, right? He'd say that's perfectly, that's, that's, that, that, that's perfectly consistent with the rule of law. But sabotage is not because sabotage is about a president by virtue of his own independent judgment saying, yeah, this thing that's written into law, I don't like. And so I'm going to undermine the capacity of those people who are charged with interpreting and implementing that policy, um, but undermine their capacity to, 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 to fulfill their, their basic obligation in order to, uh, to, 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 to implement it. So David talks a, a little bit about this, and, and there are sort of two separate stories that are weaved into his um, argument. So one is, when if Congress wanted to dismantle the EPA, perhaps that would be infeasible. It's very likely that most of the people are actually happy with the fact that we have EPA and that we have an agency who can react quickly if, you know, if there are some dangers to the environment that are pressing and, and regulate some pollution that we just learn about that it's uh, harmful to our health. So, so perhaps EPA is something that the median voter wants and uh, dismantling the agency is like a quieter way of getting rid of what the voter wants. And it is quiet, you know, it's like, yes, it is in the news that the head of the agency request, or like the Office of Management and Budget requested a lower budget, but like no one is really paying too much attention to that. So that's one interpretation. That would point us to saying, okay, we should really do something about this because this is, this is just subverting, this is like trying to subvert the will of the electorate. But another view, which also David talks about uh, and, and seems to take, is that 
because of all these checks and balances and and uh, the the slowness of the American uh, legislative legislative process, it just takes ages for Congress to react to the public opinion. They are not going to dismantle the APA because not because people don't want it, but it's because it's just so hard. But then you say, well, so then what what the presidents are doing might be the right thing to do. They are responding to the pressures from the voters and. And, and hey, we shouldn't be worried about this. And it, it wasn't clear to me which position David takes. To me, the latter seems in most of, I guess it really depends. It really varies from example to example. And I think here we are missing Anthony because he would say, you guys check your biases, no? Like when we talk about EPA and, and, and Mick Mulvaney, um, in the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, uh, then we feel like that was wrong. This is not what the voter wanted. But on the other hand, when we think about uh, Defense of Marriage Act, another example from the from the paper, we think like, yeah, no, that was the right thing to do. So, so I think we should check our biases and, and take a step back. But if I were to adjudicate it, I would say most of the time it's just a quiet way of uh, of making policy changes um, that might not be supported by most of the people. Yeah. I- Look, I mean, both they're not mutually exclusive. It's possible that some agencies endure simply because they have a, a base of support within the broader public. It also simultaneously is the case that because of separation of powers, it's really hard to pass laws. It's really hard to do it. It's really hard then to unwind agencies and institutions that have been created by previous Congresses. You could have a, a, an instance where a, a plurality, a majority of the public might look skeptically upon an agency that nonetheless endures because the 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 the, the task of building the supermajorities across multiple chambers of congress and securing a presidential signature are just too great in order to actually unwind it F- fine those are reasons why the, the the building of a largely liberal administrative state has played to the advantage of liberals that, that once you create an agency it tends to endure and might give us reason to believe that, well, if, if you look out upon the administrative state and you say, my God, I can't stand these agencies, what am I to do? Options within Congress, they're formally available, but in, in practicality, they're never going to deliver. So that's why I'm going to kind of go behind the scenes and quietly, as you put it, sabotage these things. Fine, but not fine. Because again, that in a deep way constitutes a violation of the rule of law. If you want to be consistent about legal protections and the significance of and recognize the significance of statutes that are on the books, the only way forward is to go back and pass new laws. It won't do to just have a president come in and say, I don't like those laws for one reason or the other, and therefore I'm going to, to gut these agencies. Um, and again, it may be that those agencies aren't performing especially well. It may be that they're not especially popular. But if that's true, then what's consistent with the rule of law is um, a president then going forward and making the case um, and trying to statutorily unwind that which, which, which was created by statute. Yes. Yeah, so, so if I understand uh, correctly, David's argument is, yes, this is violating rules that we have, but I don't see an easy way to convince everyone to somehow enforce the rule of law. So I'm giving you some prescriptions about how to improve the situation without that. But you and I are not lawyers, so we can talk about this independently of whether this is violating some legal norms. So you've written extensively on the idea that uh, when we have gridlock in Congress, then you know that might have really negative consequences for whom voters elect. Um, out of their frustration and desire for some action. And yeah, I would like to hear a little bit more about how you think about this. Well, I find much most of what David has to say entirely persuasive. Sabotage comes from a place of deep frustration and anger towards the administrative state. And it makes sense politically why presidents exercise it recognizing that the courts in the same way are ill-equipped to provide a corrective to agencies that overreach. So too are they ill-equipped to go after a president and and rein in a president who's engaging in sabotage. And, and meanwhile, the whole argument for sabotage is about the travails of the legislative process. Just as Congress is going to have a hard time passing the law that's going to overturn the EPA, they're going to so too, they're going to have a hard time passing statutes that will resurrect the EPA in the face of a, a protracted campaign of sabotage by a committed president. 
So all that politically makes sense, and and yet it still is is really troubling. It's really troubling that this is where we're at. I mean, this is this strikes me as really dysfunctional. There's the concerns about the rule of law, but if you if you're concerned too about you know administ um, the volatility of policy that is lurching to the left when there's a um, a Democrat in office and lurching to the right when a Republican is in office. Or you're concerned about the depletion of expertise. I mean, you're, the point you raised earlier strikes me as right on, which is if you gut an agency or you say, this agency, we're going to just pick it up or we're going to move it to Alaska. I mean, then, and everybody who you know is in D.C. says, are you kidding? I'm not moving to Alaska, not, not, not uprooting my family. And, then, and what, what that does for just effective rulemaking, I mean, they're working in, they're often working in domains that are, are really quite complex, that require real expertise. And these kinds of, of, of actions and strategies, while understandable politically, are degrading to the health and well-being, not just of our democracy and the rule of law, but also of the capacity of an administrative state to, to, to function. And to my mind, an administrative state that isn't robust and well-functioning is one that is going to leave a democracy imperiled. Because where the government isn't attending to the wishes and wants of a public, that leaves open space for would-be demagogues to step in and say, only I can fix it, I'll do it. Look to me to solve all your problems. And that's when we really lose our way. So there's a reason why most advanced industrialized countries with robust democracies also have really robust bureaucracies. And, And so efforts at sabotage, which degrade those bureaucracies, in addition to being assaults on the rule of law, also, to my mind, imperil democracy itself. Okay, so I just I just want to make one thing clear. So uh, you mentioned earlier that, according to you, let's just make easier for Congress to pass statutes to make decisions and then maybe hold the president a little bit more accountable for implementing those. But it's not obvious that it would achieve different outcomes. Because if you make uh, it easier to pass laws, you might have a little bit more volatility when it comes to laws. And then we are going to have the same effect. Like EPA will be reinstated. It's just, this is going to be official. This is going to be done according to the rules. But you are going to have establishment of the EPA and demolition of the EPA, depending on who, who gets to power. And that really raises a host of the same issues that, we, that we've discussed, but also new issues. So to me, it seems like the solution that you are advocating, you seem to be advocating, is, is the right one. Let's leave Congress where they are. Uh, you know, there's a reason why we have Congress that does not change laws so frequently because we want some policy stability. And let's just uh, make the administrative state a little bit more insulated from the political process. And I'm sure there are some drawbacks to that. And I would like you to tell me what the drawbacks are. But to the first degree, that sounds like the right solution. Yeah, well, and it's the solution that, again, most liberal democracies have uh, in advanced industrialized countries have adopted. They have much more robust administrative states that aren't subject to political appeals of whoever happened to win the latest election. But, I mean, the, the, the big drawback is felt by conservatives because they look out upon the administrative state that was born of the New Deal and the Great Society that is disproportionately attending to uh, liberal objectives involving the reduction of inequalities, the provision of new rights, the, 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 the you know, cleaning, cl- clean air and clean water and healthier working environments, all these kinds of things are consistent with liberal objectives for the state. And if what you say is, we're going to not only lock those in, but make it all the more difficult for anybody to push back. And yet, uh, it, it is, it, it's the arrangement, as I say, that, that many most in, uh, liberal democracies in advanced industrialized countries have, have adopted. Yeah, but again, you know, as Anthony might say, how did that work out for them? <laughs> and and I guess what he would say is, and sorry, Anthony, I'm using now the fact that you're not here, so I can we, say we can say I whatever want we can put words in his mouth. Yes, <laughs> 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 but what what he would say, uh, and I agree with that to some extent, is that um, we want the elected officials to have power over those agencies. We don't want someone who is unelected, whom we can't really affect, whose whose direction we can't affect every two to four years to make those very important decisions for us. So I think I think the way to go would be uh still, you know, maintain the political aspects of the agencies and allow the president to have some sway, but somehow prevent the presidents from gutting the agency in a in a sense of 
getting rid of experts and making it much less attractive to work there and things like that. And that's hard because how do you do that? You can write into law that, for example, an agency has to have at least, you know, this many people, but that seems like super inefficient. No one runs any business like this. You know, we scale up and scale down depending on the circumstances. So, so how do you actually do that? How do you keep them responsive to, to the political process, but yet insulate them from these kind of huge upheavals? You can hold hearings. You can pass additional laws that don't overturn the administrative state, but, but add new obligations and provide additional clarity to what, what they're supposed to do. You can change budgets that either empower or disempower the work of an administrative state. All that's fair play. And through political appointees, you can nudge goings-on within an administrative agency, the direction to the left or to the right. Yes, yes, yes. Sabotage, though, is, is, is a bridge too far. But it's hard. So there's this example in his paper of how, how the Office of Management and Budget asked for a much lower budget for, I think it was for the APA. Congress actually responded with an increase in the budget of 9%. And what did they do with that? I mean, I might be now confusing the agencies and putting a few, a few different stories together, but what, what did they do with this increased budget? They actually created quite attractive retirement packages. And that's how they incentivize people to leave. And then they didn't replace those people or replace them with you know like-minded people. So it's actually very hard to prevent the sabotage, like people are creative uh, without stifling the institution. So uh, I hear you. It's all, it's hard all the way yes. through. It's hard to sabotage too. I mean, to your point, just because the, you know, the head of an agency comes out, we want to zero out this budget doesn't mean that then Congress will, will abide that order. They come back and say, no, we're actually going to give you more money. Right. And there's an opportunity for the subsequent administration to try to resurrect the, that agency. And there are organized interests around these agencies that can try to push back. But they cut, as you point out, they cut both ways. And that's where it's interesting. Just because you raise the salary, excuse me, just because you increase the budget doesn't mean that I still don't have options available to me to undertake the work of sabotage. But that's where, you know, the push and pull looks interesting and is contested all the way through. But again, when it's in the service of sabotage, he wants to say, not okay. His final suggestion was just make it harder to appoint as heads of agencies people who are fundamentally opposed to the goal of those agencies. What do you think about that? Is that, is that doable? Well, I think that, that gets down to the, the politicization, the number of political appointees that presidents are able to make and the discretion presidents have within any one appointment to pick somebody, not just who wants to redirect, but wants to actually subvert the agency. And that's hard because if you are interested in subverting the agency and you have enough support within Congress, those political appointees, should they require Senate confirmation, are going to get through because co-partisans in the first branch of government will say, you know what, I don't like that agency either. And you, you president, are going to you know, make it impossible for that agency to continue to to do its, his, its bad work, hooray, I'll vote for that person. So, so then, but then, and then the question is, where is the corrective to come from? So if not from Congress, then is it going to come from the courts? Well, they step in and there it's not clear. On the one hand, they're showing a greater willingness of late, as we talked about earlier, than they have in the past to engage in these politics. But David lays out a host of reasons why they're institutionally ill-equipped to provide a meaningful check. Next step would be the American public, right? Will we sort of respond reflexively and say, President, don't you dare sabotage? And there it's not so clear either. Uh, if Trump wins and he un undertakes the work of sabotage, then will he suffer politically? Probably probably not. And so where is a corrective to be, to be found that's foolproof? And my own guess is it's not clear that there is one. Now, what you could do is dramatically reduce the number of political appointees. Right? Just make it make the president's control over the, the, the channels that are available to presidents to to sink their claws into the administrative state, just reduce them. But that runs entirely against the whole notion of democratizing the administrative state, holding unaccountable bureaucrats to account, and then also laying the groundwork for for sabotage itself. So there aren't clear solutions here, but I think what 
to my mind, and this might be my bottom line, what David has done is, is cast our attention to a phenomenon that political scientists and have, have not done enough to try to make sense of. I don't know. Do you find this persuasive? Yeah. Do you, like, is it, are we, or is it, are we just talking in, in circles? I don't know. I, I'm of two minds. So on the one hand, uh, it infuriates me when I hear those stories. You know, when you move an agency from DC to Kansas and, and it's obvious you're doing this for one particular reason. You just want to decimate this agency. I just find it infuriating. But on the other hand, when I start thinking about solutions, as you said, there are trade-offs and it's not even obvious, you know, it's not even obvious what, what's exactly what that we are after. Like Again, I go back to this idea that uh, we would like maybe Congress to be a little bit more nimble so that they are changing the law and, and then we can be upset with the new law, but we are at least happy with the process. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, a lot has been done, uh, has been written on, on the fact that in the past we felt like every... Um, you know, point of power in American politics will just work to preserve their power. So that's going to keep us in this balanced world where Congress wants to have power and that's why they're going to constrain the president. And we do seem to live in a different world in which is is just uh, politicians view a party as a whole, as some, some vehicle for uh, policy making, for achieving goals, or maybe for just, you know, staying in power. And... Um, and maybe we should think about them as uh, as one. So we, we shouldn't have the distinction Congress and President so much, but we should now think about like there are those two parties who are just governing and they are using the tools at their disposals. And, you know, and at the end of the day, when you think about the presidential campaigns, and let's go back to the current presidential campaign, that's where the discussion is. It's the discussion is not necessarily about how we are going to change the immigration law, because <laughs> as we just heard, we are not going to change the immigration law, but it's more about which president is going to, so which party at the end is going to enforce less or, or, or more stringent uh, immigration rules by, you know, bending the law uh, or using their tools uh, a little bit, um, you know, on the margins. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. <laughs>